Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 225. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have two great stories today, Mary Rosenblum and Gareth L. Power, providing the tales. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in. First up is Gareth L. Powell's little short fiction, 11 Minutes. Then we have a fact article, a new, se- or a new series of fact articles by Tony Custard. I'll explain everything. Next up is main fiction. It is Mary Rosenblum's Skin Deep. Then we have the ever-popular David Raiklin with his movie soundtracks. That is the show lined up. So before we get into kind of 225, just give you a little heads up. I heard some, and it's going around the internet as well, so a, a number of people have probably have heard of it, you know, and what's happening. Spider Robinson, as you know, lost his good wife, Jeannie. I think it was in 2010, to cancer. And now he's just, he's been hit with, his daughter has now got a certain stage, I forget what it is, of breast cancer as well. You know what I mean? Just before that, that family, this horrible disease. So if there's a chance you could go over there and have a, you know, I'll put a link on to Spider's blog and to his daughter's, like, writing a blog as well about her experiences. Please pop over there, you know, and if you can, donate, you know, help them cover these costs. Just, you know what I mean? The look of some people just doesn't run kind of that well, and that's just hideous when I found out. You know, I got a message on Twitter off Matt Sambo and Smith just to kind of Twitter it out there, and I just it just knocked us flat to think that. You know, like, to think you kind of you go through that just hideous event, you know, and lose that kind of... Because it just looked like Jeannie and Spider just were like soulmates. Do you know what I mean? And then to lose that kind of partner. Then to be hit again with it all over again on your daughter. Oh, man. It's just like sometimes it just is a kind of cruel, cruel world, you know? So, but if you can, pop over to Spider's blog, you know what I mean? Just say hello and say, you know, send his daughter some wishes as well. They've been fantastic at Starships over throughout the kind of... You know, Starship Sova's kind of run of things. He's he's donated stories to the books and to the shows as well. Great writer, great narrator. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. And again, Spider, if you listen to this, my thoughts with you and your daughter. So first up is a little bit of short fiction by Gareth L. Powell. Gareth was, as you say, brought up in... Actually, Gareth as well, volume three, he's in there. Brought up in the west of England. He studied humanities and creative writing at the University of Glamorgan. 
He was since given guest lectures on creative writing at Bath Spa University. He has written a series of non-fiction articles on science fiction for the Irish Times. He is the author of The Recollection and Silver Sands, both of which were favourably reviewed in The Guardian, and the short story collection The Last Reef which was described by Morpheus Tales as one of the finest collections of science fiction stories he's ever had the privilege of reading. Gareth is currently working on a new novel for Solaris Books, and he can be found at garethlpowell.com. The story is narrated by Joe Simarco. He is a 25-year-old living in Los Angeles, but he's currently living in Pennsylvania. He says he's always been a geek, loved playing video games, anime, and all things fantasy. Truth be told, he says, he's always had inspirations of becoming a voice actor in one of these mediums. It's actually nice being working with Joe as well. You know, he's kind of been going through this process, and Joe's got a great voice as well, and this is a fantastic little narration. Joe, well done, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Eleven Minutes by Gareth Powell Pasadena, California Gary and Carl sat at their desks, hunched in front of bright flat-screen displays somewhere in a room at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Dusk had fallen over the hills beyond the windows, and the only sound in the room was the occasional snick of a key being tapped. Each keystroke controlled the movements of a mechanical rover some hundred million kilometers away on the lip of a Martian crater. As per the schedule, the rover's cameras were focused on a rock with the designation H-4356A semicolon, a boulder about the size of a small Volkswagen resting in the sand close to the crater's edge. Interesting weathering patterns had been noted around the stone's lower flanks, and this evening, Gary's task was to get a few good close-up shots of them. Every tap of his keyboard nudged the rover forward another few centimeters. The time lag made this process laborious. With Mars at this distance from the Earth, it took each of his instructions five and a half minutes to crawl across the solar system, and another five and a half for the rover's acknowledgement to reach him, leaving a gap of just over eleven minutes between each command. He looked across at Carl. Enjoying those? Carl looked up from his noodles, fork poised halfway to his mouth. He was reading a magazine that lay spread open on his desk. Want some? He proffered the cardboard container. Gary shook his head. He couldn't eat noodles without thinking of maggots. He had the same problem with spaghetti and rice, which maybe explained why he was thirty pounds lighter than Carl. No, thanks. Gary preferred to make his own soups. He liked the simplicity of it. All you had to do was boil some vegetables in a saucepan, add some stock, and when it was ready, stick it all in a blender. What could be more nutritious? His soups kept him nourished and hydrated, and they were an easy way to ensure he ingested his recommended daily intake of fresh vegetables. He made up a big batch each Sunday, and that saw him right through the week. In his bag today, he had a flask of chicken and sweet potato. Hey, he said. I thought I'd stop by the gym later, on the way home. Carl just looked at him, eyes blank with indifference, spreading gut pushed tight against an oversized belt buckle. 
Then he went back to his magazine. It was a popular science periodical, and the headline read, Amazing Alternate Worlds. The cover featured a painting of Nazi swastikas adorning the Great Pyramid at Giza. Do you believe in all that? Gary asked. Carl frowned. Huh? Gary waved his hand at the magazine. All that alternate reality crap. Carl took a forkful of noodles and chewed them slowly before swallowing. I guess. Gary smiled mischievously. So you think there's an endless number of Carls out there in the universe, all playing out every possible version of your life? Carl gave him a wary look. That's the theory. Gary scratched his ear. Do you think any of them are going to the gym tonight? Carl sighed. You're a dick. He turned away and scooped another forkful into his mouth. After a moment, Gary shrugged. Ah, suit yourself. Gary looked at the image relayed from the Martian desert. As instructed, the rover had moved another wheel rotation closer to H-4356A semicolon, but now there was something wrong with the picture, and it took him a moment to spot what it was. He frowned. Hey, Carl, come and have a look at this. Carl dropped his fork into the noodle container. What now? Gary pointed to the screen. This shadow. Carl huffed. He wheeled his chair laboriously over to Gary's workstation and looked at the screen over the top of his glasses. Yeah, what about it? Well, it wasn't there a minute ago. Carl smacked his lips together. What's making it? Gary shrugged. I don't know. That's the edge of the crater over there. There shouldn't be anything there capable of throwing a shadow. Is it the rover? No, the sun's at the wrong angle. Hmm. Noodles now forgotten, Carl scooted back to his own computer and started tapping on the keypad. I'm going to try bringing the camera around, he said. While he typed... Gary leaned close to his own screen, trying to squint out more detail. The images were rough and of low resolution. The high-res stuff got downloaded at a much slower rate. What do you think it is? Carl entered a final command, hit the return key, and looked around, the roll of bristled fat at the back of his neck bunched up like a scarf. Could be a rock slide, or a dust devil, I guess. He pushed himself to his feet. Look, I'm going for a soda. Do you want one? Gary shook his head. He was too busy trying to work out what could be throwing this unexpected shadow. If only I could be there, he thought. I could just turn my head. Carl lumbered out to the vending machine in the corridor, and Gary heard coins clatter into the mechanism, followed by the thump of a can being dispensed. There's probably nothing, Carl called. Yeah, I know. I just want to see what it is. Gary checked his watch. Three minutes had passed since Carl instructed the camera to turn in the direction of the crater. It would be at least another eight minutes before they got an image. He watched as Carl came back and flopped down on his seat. You really should think about taking some exercise, man. 
It would do you a world of good. Carl popped the tab on the top of his soda. Don't you start. I get enough of that from my wife. Gary blinked in surprise. You're married? Is that so hard to believe? No, uh, it's just that you never mention her. I didn't realize. Do you have a girlfriend, Gary? No, not right now. You gay? Uh, no. You see, there's plenty I don't know about you either. Carl lowered his voice conspiratorially. But you know why that is, don't you? Gary leaned forward. No, why? Carl licked his fat, wet lips. Because I know when to mind my own damn business. The next five minutes passed in uncomfortable silence. Across the room, Carl hunched over his keyboard, shoulders tense. The back of his ears were bright red. To pass the time, Gary pulled out his cell phone and tweeted, Carl's an asshole. A minute later, Carl replied, calling him a retard. And then Debbie, their supervisor, came online from her office upstairs, telling them both to cool it. Her tweet read, Don't make me come down there, boys. Gary laughed and put his phone down. The data from Mars had started to come in. The picture built a strip at a time, starting with the sky. By the time it was almost fully downloaded, he could see a view across the crater towards the rusty dunes in the distance and the small sun perched in the pale sky. Not far enough, he said aloud. There was no sign of anything big enough to have thrown the shadow he had seen in the last picture. Carl grunted. With a sigh, Gary settled back. It would take another five and a half minutes to tell the camera to keep turning, and then the same amount of time to receive the next image. He rested his chin on his fist and watched the final stripe add itself to the bottom of the picture. Then he stopped breathing. Carl? He said in a very small voice. Carl, tell me that isn't what I think it is. The big man turned. He still looked angry. He wheeled across. Where? Bottom left. Carl pulled off his glasses and leaned close to the screen. When he sat back up, all the color had drained from his face. I ain't saying nothing. Not a goddamn thing. But it's a boot and... We don't know that. Gary pointed to the toe section protruding into the image. It was covered in a white material, scuffed and stained pink with Martian dust. Thick treads were visible on the sole. Sure we do. Look at it. It's a boot. What the hell else could it be? He looked at Carl. The older man's face had taken on the sweaty gray pallor of a man in a hostage video. The camera's still moving, Carl said. We should get another picture in 11 minutes. He picked up the phone. Don't say or do anything until I get Debbie down here. Are you still logged into Twitter? Gary checked his cell phone. Uh, yeah? Log out. Right now. By the time Debbie Knox walked into the room, the next image had begun to assemble itself, strip by strip, on Gary's monitor. What's this all about? 
she asked. Carl handed her a printout. Gary thinks he's found a foot. A foot? Debbie was a middle-aged woman with an unruly mass of graying hair swept back in a loose ponytail. She wore a thick-knitted cardigan over her white blouse and blue jeans. Carl tapped the paper for her. Right here! Debbie held the paper up to her face, almost touching her nose. This thing here? She frowned at the image, turning the paper this way and that, trying to make sense of it. Gary cleared his throat. Yes. Debbie's tongue clicked against her teeth. She let the arm holding the printout drop to her side. Uh, it does look like a boot, I grant you. But it isn't. It can't be, can it? She handed the piece of paper back to Carl. It must be part of the rover itself. It must have come loose. In which case we could be looking at some catastrophic damage scenarios. I told you, didn't I? Carl touched his hand to his forehead, finger and thumb extended into an L-shape. Loser. Gary flipped him the bird. Hey! Debbie stepped between them. We don't have time for your squabbles right now. We need to trace the location of this damage, and we need to... She stopped talking and stared at Gary's monitor. What is that? Gary swiveled in his chair. The computer had finished downloading the final image from the Martian surface. For a moment, his eyes refused to make sense of the picture, seeing only peculiar shadows and random blobs of color. Then it all snapped into place. Holy crap! Without taking his eyes from the screen, he got to his feet. His chair slithered away on its casters. To his left, Carl stood with his fat mouth hanging open, expressions of indignation and bafflement chasing each other across his face. Is this some kind of trick? Debbie said. Is that photoshopped? Gary swallowed. No, ma'am. He rubbed his eyes with the heels of his hands. When his sight cleared, the image on the screen remained. An apparition stood on the crater's rim, partially backlit by the small sun dipping low in the pale Martian sky. The figure of a woman in a tight-fitting, elasticized suit Head sheathed in an ornate brass helmet with small circular windows at the front and sides. She looked like a Victorian diver. An air hose protruded from the top of her helmet and rose behind her to the open hatch of a Baroque airship hanging in the thin air above the crater. Lights burned in its gondola windows. Smoke issued from its chimneys. Its huge impellers looked like windmills against the sky. The woman had one gauntleted hand raised in greeting. She held the other at waist height, clutching a bright rectangle of cloth. It's a flag, Carl said, voice flat with shock. Gary shook his head, but there could be no mistake. This woman in this outlandish suit, this impossible woman waving at them from the surface of Mars, held a flag. And not just any flag. It's the Union Jack. Carl coughed. 
He scratched the loose roll of skin beneath his jaw. Um, actually, it's only called that if it's being flown from the deck of a ship, he said, falling back on the pedantic habits of a lifetime. On land, it's known as the Union Flag. Shut the fuck up, Carl. Gary noticed the same flag painted on the canvas bow of the airship. The overlapping red, white, and blue circles of the Royal Air Force were emblazoned on the fins at its rear. He felt Debbie step up beside him. She took his hand, and her fingers felt cold. I don't understand, she said. Gary didn't answer. He had no idea what to say. The UK didn't even have a manned space program. Outside the building, he could see the lights of Pasadena reflected on the night sky. A helicopter blinked red and green above the freeway. It all looked reassuringly quiet and real. Just another weeknight in California. There was no way the British could have beaten them to Mars. Not with technology that looked as if it had been cannibalized from a museum. Not in this universe. Gary glanced across at the magazine, still resting on Carl's desk. Amazing alternate worlds. Feeling cold inside, he turned his attention back to the screen and looked at the British woman's raised hand. Silhouetted against the sky, three of her gloved fingers were bent, but the index finger and thumb were thrust out in a proud and unmistakable message. Loses. And there you go, don't forget, copyright is Gareth, yes, thank you very much, Gareth. It came out, that story, in Interzone 235. That's the one edited by Mr. Andy Cox. Thank you very much, Gareth, that was a star. And Joe, thank you, sir. Next up is, we've got this little kind of project that's been planned in the planning stages, and now we're, we're bringing it to fruition. Or, should I say, Tony Custard and his ensemble of writing team got this idea Tony approaches and actually going back in history if anyone actually has listened to Starship so far for you know since the kind of oodles of time we played this I'm sure we played this or, or Tony got in touch with us when we kind of first kicked off and this is when basically almost when broadband first kicked off do you know what I mean so you couldn't really do these kind of things you know that long ago but Tony's into like film editing and you know everything kind of movie and soundtracks and radio and everything like that. Tony's got this idea. He came to us a few weeks ago and says, "I've got this idea of of turning the Starship Titanic by you know Terry Jones and Douglas Adams into a radio player." No, I'll just what I'll do is I'll play Tony's little bit and then we'll, we'll I'll come back in and have a little chat as well. <laughs> It wouldn't get arrested. <laughs> Since the dawn of time, the world has been waiting for one dream, one soul, one prize, one goal, one golden glance of what should be. This time has come, for no longer will the human race be denied this privilege. No longer will people dream of this day, for this day has arrived. The day the starship Titanic will embark on its maiden voyage. 
And who is this man that will captain this project? Who is this man that laughs in the face of danger and giggles at prohibited copyright law? This man of giant testes, a man of almost superhuman talent, but yet stricken with so many flaws. This man is Mr. Tony. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, basically, I can't really put my last name because I might get sued and I can't really afford that in a minute, to be honest. It's sci-fi Sunday. What else do you do today? Nothing. You sit back and click on the radio. Right. Hello, listening world of the Starship Sofa. Right, now, I've been asked by Tony himself to give you a bit of a rundown on what I plan to do with the Starship Titanic book by Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. I'm sure you're all aware of the the situation with the Hitchhiker's Guide series. Uh, I mean, basically, the Starship Titanic itself was mentioned in, in the Hitchhiker's Guide, but only very briefly. Um, now, the thing is with the... Starship Titanic itself, it was it was mainly based upon um, a computer game. Now, to be honest, I've never played the game. I'm a massive fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide series. Never played the game. Uh, it was a little bit too much, um, sort of like Discworld for me. I mean, they did write a book, well, mainly Terry Jones, to be honest. I think that Douglas Adams' input was more on the game and the book was based around the game and the brief ideas that that sort of um, Douglas Adams brought to the project in the first place. Now, what we haven't got at the minute is permission. We've tried to contact Terry Jones, but he's a very, very hard guy to get hold of. But our plan was to, well, basically just make it anywhere. Um, If Terry Jones has got a problem with us doing it or anything, it's only a fan thing, it's a non-for-profit thing, and he gets to hear this, then, um, yeah, just tell him to drop me a line. I'm sure um, Tony can forward him my email. Now, I have done radio plays in the past. We did, um, it's called Sci-Fi Sunday. It's, it's quite complicated, but we did a radio play. Within a radio play, the, the entire radio play was based upon a radio station that was, that was transmitting at, say, three in the morning on a Sunday. So, hence the Sci-Fi Sunday. And basically, we did this radio play inside it, which was called The Intrepid Adventures of the USS Starbucks, now, obviously based around Star Trek, as I'm a massive Star Trek fan, whether that be right or wrong. Right, now, what I'm going to do, I'll play a clip of the actual radio play that we did before. Now, you've got to bear with it, because basically, all we did was sneak about behind our boss's back. Every time we went to the bank or the accountants or anything, we just used to dive into the studio and perform a bit of the script. Now, we did it individually, which isn't, you know, the most ideal thing in the world. Uh, but it will give you a good idea, you know, of the, of the quality that we could produce. So now it's going to be a lot better. Now, at the end of the day, we're going to be competing with the BBC to get uh, the Starship Titanic um, adaptation to the standard that they've been performing on the Hitchhiker's Guide. So it's no easy feat, but, you know, I think we can do it. So here's a clip of the intrepid adventures of the USS Starbucks, and um, enjoy. Space. A black, sort of, empty, cold place. These are the voyages of the USS Starbucks on our three-week mission to explore freaky-ass planets and weird-looking aliens. And to bravely go where no people have been before a lot.
Captain's log. Stardate 3001. We are the crew of a Class 3 interstellar battleship and have been searching in deep space for a mineral extract known as Lithium of the planet America. Even though there's no Americans on board, we still follow the primary objective to keep things American at all costs. Forever. Most of the crew grow weary and long for some shore leave. Mr. Czech Vodnik, our chief engineer, says the holodeck will be offline for another 48 hours due to the fact that the blueprints are missing and we have no 5-amp fuses, the goddamn sneaky Russian. But we have picked up trace elements of Corlithium from a strange black object floating near the third moon of Rigel 9. We're going to send an away team to where we picked up the signal. God, I only hope we can find some so I can go back home. Home, whether... Ancelot Roman. <laughs> Grandma's apple pie is cooling on the windowsill. Work. Please, do you have to go on with yourself in that bloody recorder? You love the sound of your own voice, don't you? It's not like you've had the vocal training that I've had. Ten years with the Royal McCallum Association, and two years on Spectrovision on numerous recordings. Anyway, Captain, as your executive officer, I strongly advise that you stay on board the ship when the away team is ready. Nah, nonsense, Mr. Starch. I'll be heading the away team, probably into danger. And then all of us will be coming home, boys. Mm, just like the time we had to stop off at that planet where you insisted everyone went on shore leave. What was the name of that planet again? Oh, yes, the planet Death. Bloody good time was had by all there. Well... The few that weren't destroyed by the 40-foot lava monster, or the pits of black goo, or the satanic cult of poisonous tree frogs. Well, everyone else enjoyed himself, didn't they, lads? Yeah. yeah especially with a volleyball team. Bloody frogs can't jump more than two foot, eh, lads? Hey! Yeah. <laughs> they won't forget that whooping for a while. Anyway, computer, can you contact Mr Marley and tell him to come to the bridge, please? Yes, Captain. Right away, Captain. By the way, Captain, my port needs a service when you have the time. Yeah, short while, computer. I'll bring me air drive and me probe, see if you've got any shorts. <laughs> <laughs> bloody hell, he's even at it with the bloody androids now. Never mind the ensigns and the bloody frogs. Wagwan, me brethren. Captain, should I call our translator? Uh, Mr. Marley, can you assemble an away team to visit the object where the readings originated, as you are our chief of security? In a bit, man. I got the boys from set to 7G round for a session and I gave him a plate. Then no. Warning. Collision alert. Oh. Warning. Collision alert. Oh. Mr. Godspeed, what are you doing? I'm sorry, Captain. I was busy singing the word of the Lord. Yeah? And also staring us straight into a planet at the same time. Captain, it's just the gas clouds surrounding it look like Pope Clint Eastwood III. And I could swear it was calling to me. Telepathically calling to me. The calling of the Lord cannot be ignored or we will all feel his wrath and we will be sent to the fiery pits of the land of Richard and Judy where Beelzebub will pull out your toenails and with fiery poles pour your... Please, Mr. Godspeed, change the course now. <laughs> Mr. Chet Vodnik? Can you tell me how long it'll take us to get to our course settings? Well, Captain, it's approximately 7,000 light years away. So if we put on the Hawking Drive, it will take three minutes. Initialize Hawking Drive. Now. Five, four, three, two, one. Drive activated. You're aboard the U.S. Starbucks and we don't give a shit. Who, who was it that uh, actually invented the Hawking Drive? Well, Captain, the original concept of the Hawking Drive derived from the latter half of the 20th century by a very clever quantum physicist, 
and rock musician Justin Hawking from the band The Darkness. <laughs> no way, I thought it was that local robot dude in wheelchair. Right, I can't play it all, obviously, or else I'll run out of time. No, I hope it didn't offend anybody either. Uh, right, basically, on this Starship Titanic, what we are looking for is someone to adapt the book into a screenplay for us. Now, we've got the material, we've got the, the audio book, we've got the book, we've got a script of the book. So if anybody needs that to do it, then just let me know. Uh, but we are looking for volunteers. It's obviously a, a non-paid sort of role. But if there is anybody out there, just drop us a line, you know, if you can get in, involved or you want to help in anywhere, please just feel free to email. Right, so, so basically, that's the long and the short of it. I'll try and keep you informed as and when we get more information. So... Thanks a lot for listening, and back to Tony at the Starship Sofa. It's sci-fi Sunday, what else do you do today? Nothing, you sit back and click on the radio. Trust me, I'm very much aware that this is a low-priority mission. <laughs> So there you go. That's the score. And I'll be happy to play that if, if anyone can kind of, you know, if we can pull this off and get Starship Titanic into like a radio play and do it. You know, I'll put it on the show. Like I say, it's, we're all doing it for voluntary. So <laughs> Tony's calling. Tony's not called Tony Custard. <laughs> Just in case the copyright law please come crashing at his door. But... If there's anyone out there who who thinks, you know, I can write a script, I'll get a script, drop us a line and I'll pass on your details to Tony. And what this these kind of articles are going to do is each month we're going to just, you know, Tony's going to explain where he is in the process, what's happening, you know, from his jail cell. That's how it's going to be. <laughs> Tony, you're off your head. Crackers, sir. There you go. Do look out for next instalment. Next up is... Main fiction, and it comes from Mary Rosenblum. Mary has, again, very kind, you know, once did a story for Starship Sofa, I think it was called The Rain Man. What a fan. That's when I first discovered Mary's work. And just an amazing writer. This story as well, it's fantastic. It came out in 2004 from Asimov's Science Fiction. That was actually, it was the double bill, the October and November one, you know, when they do these double ones. Then it went into the best science fiction 22nd annual collection by Gardner Dawes was. It's just the mammoth book of science fiction as well. It was in that one. It's just a fantastic story. I mean, just very cleverly written and it's a, a great idea. Novels that Mary's had out are The Drylands, Chimera, The Stone Garden, Horizons, collections she's had, Synthesis and Other Virtual Realities and Water Rights. Started with her first short story, I think it was The Awakening in 1990, right up until 2009 with The Dragon Storm. And I actually asked Mary as well, I said, 2009, man. We've got lots of projects on as well and, you know, all fingers and all sorts of pies doing things. And actually Mary is a pilot as well. And this was, I discovered that when we did, I think it was volume Two, Mary gave her all the kind of, you know, when we do the extras for the volumes, Mary kind enough gave us like all these like documents to do with that, like a pilot's license and flying and everything like that. So go on, Mary. The story is narrated by David Benhamu. David is recent graduate of University of Colorado at Boulder with an MA in Japanese literature. He's currently teaching high school math at the Peace Corps in 
the heart of West Africa, he says. You can actually have a look at over what all these adventures that David's been doing at his blog, which is 830daysblogspot.com. Put a link on that so you can go over there and have a look and see what David's up to. David, thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Skin Deep by Mary Rosenblum. I never thought they'd be looking for me when the media crew came through the restaurant door. I didn't even look up from the pot sink. I mean, why should I? The crowded little floor out there, with its 15 tables, was the hot new review in the Times these days. So there was always somebody with a name out there. I was never sure if it was Antonio's pricey, wild-harvest-only menu, or if it was just that there were so few tables. It was a bad night, anyway. The new salad girl was trying hard not to look at my face when she had to come back to my station, and Presidio and the crew kept sending her back here. It was kind of an initiation thing. I never got the joke. It wasn't like I didn't already know what any woman's reaction was, looking at me. So I was up to my elbows in saffron-colored dishwater and paella pans when all of a sudden there's light and more noise and bodies than usual in the crowded, barely legal little kitchen. I turn around, dripping greasy yellow suds, and there's this woman with a mic and a couple of walking camera guys all rigged out in the relay goggles, getting the human eye view. The woman is pointing the mic at me and babbling something in a loud, bright, talking head voice. Something about technology and Dr. Somebody and how do I feel. I feel like crap. I don't own a mirror, not even to shave. I don't need one. Anytime I want to see my face, I just have to look at somebody. I get a nice, clear reflection of the minimum rebuild work that National Health did on me. Not pretty. Be glad you never ran into me on a dark night. And I'm used to it. I mean... I can't even remember what I looked like before the fire, but, well, I guess it still bugs me. And I'm looking at the camera goggles and thinking I won't even be able to surf the news streams for at least 24 hours. So, Eric, tell us how you feel about having a normal face again. Are you excited? Has Dr. Olson Bernard given you an idea of how long it will take? Olson Bernard. The news head's words finally make it through the fog. He's the dude over at the university hospital. I filled out the usual forms for some kind of new artificial skin graft, an experimental cloning thing or something. There were 30 other people there, too, and a couple were as bad as me, and I guess I just put it out of my head. I've applied for this kind of thing before, but they always tell me the damage went too deep and you just can't rebuild, but I still go. Doctor, I say, and I know I sound like it wasn't just my face that got cooked. The news head turns with the bright, perfect Euro phenotype smile to the camera's eyes and starts to spew about the doctor and the poor, pitiful me and how the good doctor is going to give me back my life and all that. I stop hearing her because there's this hum in my ears and I can feel the pressure of all the eyes. Rinko, Harry, Spider, and all these guys who look at me every night. But now they're staring like they never saw me before. And the chefs, too. Even Domino the one who groped me that once, and the waitress, and even a couple of customers looking over their shoulders from the dining room. So, how do you feel? Newshead jabs her mic at me like it's a police prod. I wouldn't know. She's disappointed. Antonio finally tells me, kind of testy, to go home just so he can get back to serving dinner, which is okay with me, because my face feels hard as plastic from all the stairs. I tell Presidio, loudly, that I'm going to take a leak then hop the service elevator to the back entrance and out into the alley, just in case the media is still hanging around. It's raining and the lights are bleeding red and green and yellow into the puddles. Everybody has umbrellas or hats pulled down low, 
and the taxis and bicycle rickshaws are all over the place. The cold New York smelling rain softens my plastic face as I head for the train. I don't even get a second glance from the board security behind the scanners as I reach the platform and the car is almost empty for once. In my walk-up, my online is shimmering with my urgent mail screen, a storm hammering the Hawaiian coast, all gray waves, foam, and shredding palm trees. It's de Turk, I bet, and sure enough, when I sit down in front and touch in, her words start scrolling across the screen double time. You're all over the news stream, sweetie, guess it's a slow week. And miniature fireworks explode on the screen, which is de Turk laughing. Then she runs a chunk of stream at me, and before I can blank in, I get to see myself backed up against the pot sink, looking about as cornered as an alley dog. I haven't looked at my face for a long time, and the camera light, or the angle, makes it look bigger than real, flattening and a glossy, sickly white like melting candle wax, with stubs for ears, no hair, holes where the nose ought to be, and a twisted grimace. I feel every bite of the chicken curry that Antonio fed the staff tonight. Guess that big-time dog gonna fix your face good as new. There's a pause, and my screen shows me swirling gray clouds above a mirror still lake, which is the Turk being thoughtful. He's for real, I checked. Go for it. And the Turk is gone, leaving a scatter of pink blossoms that drift across the dark screen and settle like snow at the bottom. I don't know what the hell that means, and I blank my screen, pissed because I need to be pissed. More than that, I'm really mad at the Turk, who was a major presence on the web and an info broker, I'm guessing, and not a real legal one at that. But the urgent mail screen comes right back up, so I guess it wasn't a Turk at all, and it wasn't. It's a formal letter from the hospital where I did the interview, and I have to do a retina scan before I can read it. And that careful, cover-your-butt, hard-to-read crap that the legal guys use, the letter tells me that I've been selected to be a participant and all that stuff. There's a taxi password for a free ride, and I'm directed to download a key. I stick a mini-CD into the drive, and the key burns in. 9 a.m., the letter tells me. Show up at the hospital lobby. It's for real. I'm scared. And that's silly, because what the hell have I got to lose? There are a bunch more pages, and I'm supposed to retina each one after I read it. They're full of words and numbers and paragraphs I've seen before that mean, you can't sue me, and I snap a retina on each of them without reading a word and send it back. Then I touch up a couple of Deterk's links, but she doesn't answer, so maybe she picked up that I was pissed, or maybe she's doing whatever she does. It's early, but I don't feel like downloading a book, so I call up some music from one of the fringe sites and listen to somebody mixing oud and clarinet in a hot rhythm section with a Latin flavor, no less. It's not great, but it's better than dodging the news streams on the web. The password lets me take one of the sleek new autocabs, so I don't have to put up with a rickshaw driver looking at me in his mirror. And at the hospital, I drop the CD in the tray, and my retina lets me right through the security lock. Soon as the inner door closes behind me, a yellow arrow lights up on the black matted floor at my feet. Follow the yellow brick road. Okay, I'm game. It takes me down a wide hallway, past other zombies shuffling along with their eyes on their own arrows, purple or green or blue. Darts, finally, under a wide door made out of some kind of wood-looking material that doesn't feel like wood when I lay my palm on it. Funny, that's one of the few things I remember from before, sitting with this old guy as he carved at a piece of wood, and he hands it to me, and I feel it like silk, all warm and somehow alive. It was curvy, I guess, but all I remember is his smile, hair like tufts of white cotton, and that wood that felt like an animal's flank beneath my hand, or a woman's, maybe, 
I wouldn't know. Mr. Halsey, the receptionist who buzzed me in smiles, and she's good, because it barely falters. Or maybe she sees a lot like me. You got our letter. The doctor is with a patient. Would you like a seat? Doctors are always with a patient when you show up. But her voice is warm, and that little flinch I got when it first came in has gone away, and I can almost feel her smile. So I smile back. I can sort of do that. And pick up one of the nice handhelds racked by the comfy chairs. It offers a bunch of magazines, some stories by name authors, and even a couple of quick thrillers heavy on the graphics. Not your national health selection. I touch through them, but the names I've read and the thrillers don't thrill me. About the time I touch it off, the door opens and the doctor comes out. He's not one of the ones who interviewed me. This guy is tall, so that I have to look up when I get to my feet. He's pretty much your average Euro-Mongro type. Brown hair, long face, ho-hum nose. I always notice faces. Funny. And he doesn't flinch. He smiles. And he looks at me. Really looks. People don't do that. Their glances skid off my face like leather soles on ice. Meanwhile, he's shaking my hand, and before I can turn the thinking part of my brain back on, we're in his office, which is all carpet and grass paper on the walls, and a real wood desk about as big as my bed. I want to run my hands over it, but I don't. You got my letter. His smile broadens just a hair. You're a fast reader. I shrug. It could turn out worse? Now he shrugs. My letter. No doctoral hour for him. He gets points for that. Are you willing to undergo the procedure? You understand that it's still experimental, and although we've repaired more localized damage that is similar in depth of cellular destruction, we haven't actually... He falters for the merest instant. Fixed anyone like me, I offer. Helpfully. Belligerently. Okay, I'll admit it. Yes. And his eyes are on me, and they're grave, not offended by my petty snap. I feel suddenly small. I'm sorry. I look down. Something I don't do much anymore. Whatever you want to do, do. And I am, yes, afraid. I hate the feeling. Flinch as the doc puts his hand on my shoulder. Want to slap him off. When was the last time somebody did that? Put his hand on me for no reason. Well, Domino. But that wasn't for no reason, and Domino isn't picky. Let me show you something. He nods towards the desktop. It was a hollow projector set into the top, and a bright blur materializes above it, coalescing slowly into a human head. It's a kid with a bright smile, the kind you see kids give when mom or dad points the camera. He has wispy brown hair and blue eyes and a really cute face. I'm looking, and this hand closes around my insides and squeezes, and all of a sudden I can't breathe anymore. Because it's me. I know it, and I don't know why I know it, but I do. He's pretty. Way off in the distance, I feel the doc's fingers squeezing my shoulder and hear him telling me to sit down. Something bumps the back of my knees, and I sort of fall onto his seat, but I can't take my eyes off that kid's face. Children's services had a photo in their file. I've used a modeling program to age that original to the present. The doc squeezes my shoulder again. The boy's face starts to change, and I want to yell stop, but nothing works. So I just sit there frozen and watch him get older. His face lengthens and firms up, and his hair goes from wispy to a contemporary buzz. The program even adds a diamond stud on one earlobe. And his eyes change, too. Ah, uh, there's still a blue that's almost gray. But the expression changes from that happy kid smile to a look that seems sad. 
And I wonder if the programmer meant to do that, or if I'm just reading stuff into it that isn't really there. But that's just a trickle of thought, because most of me is numb. That's how I would look? It's going to work. His voice is low, gentle, and his hand is still on my shoulder. I can't give you proof, because you're the first case where the damage is this extensive, but I know it. If I didn't know for sure, I would never have asked you. He means it. Ah, God, I hear it in his voice, and that face in front of me is so damn beautiful. I'm going to start shaking, or crying, or just explode, burst into a scatter of dust in a minute. And it's as if he knows, because he gives my shoulder a final squeeze and steps back. You'll check into the hospital tomorrow, he tells me. We've already contacted your employer, and he's giving you the time off, with a job return guarantee. How? I swallow, try again. How can you add all that? All the face that isn't there, the ears, nose, lips, eyebrows that I see in that hollow. We're using cloned and modified cell strains, he says. Using our computer model of how you should look, we'll build a scaffold, layer by layer. That's a three-dimensional structure built of micro-thin layers of a complex mix of biodegradable polyesters loaded with the right enzymes and hormones that trigger cell growth. The scaffold dissolves as the cells grow. We do this kind of thing already in a big petri dish to make sheets of graft skin. You know about that. But in a 3D scaffold, created in place, the cells differentiate to form the appropriate type of tissues, and they form in place. No surgery, no implanting. Your face will simply grow back. I hear passion in his voice, and it helps. It cracks some of this numbness that coats me like ice. He believes in this, like it's God and he's almost touched it. He turns that look on me, and for once, I don't see my real face in his eyes. I see that face in the hollow, and his belief is hot as summer sun. I will see you tomorrow, he tells me, and we'll get started. I leave. Fast. Go outside, onto concrete and turn left. Start walking. I walk, and it's all concrete with buildings and people, and I don't really see any of it. If anybody looked at my face, I missed it. But after a while, the city looks pretty much normal again, new and old, fancy and cheap, all layered on top of each other, and some woman with fancy braids does a bad double take and nearly falls off the curb. I figure out where I am, catch the subway, and go back to the walk-up. I figure I'll download a book, a new one by one of those hot Arab writers. You know, one of those that grew up in the forever war zone and know things that I sure hope I don't ever have to learn. They're not popular because they mostly don't like anyone who's not Arab. But sometimes, you know, all that anger and hatred makes me jealous. They have someone to hate. Me, I just have this, why did this happen, wreck. Mom and kid, gas tank catches fire. Act of God? Maybe if I believed in a God, I could hate him. Or her. Why am I thinking this tonight? Because I'm scared. And I don't know why. Because what I told the doc was true. What have I got to lose? But I feel like I'm standing on this cliff. Once I jump off, I can't ever get back here. I don't download the book after all. It's support night. The reminder pops up on my screen. It's this weekly thing I have to do to keep my disability. Proves I'm working on living with my face. That I'm not planning on gunning down tourists in Times Square. I have to go. So I do. It's almost as good as taking drugs. We all sit around in cheap plastic chairs and various people get up to share their bad week. Rude fast foodie, nasty in-laws, unloving lover, and we all make supportive noises. There's a core that's really into this, emoting and swaying like they're worshipping this god of disfigurement, 
and I bet they could get an Oscar. The rest of us, we're just there. But there's one kid I really like. Kitten. That's what she calls herself. She's about 14, got caught in a gang firebomb thing. Isn't as bad as me, but hey, she's a girl. It's gotta feel worse. She remembers when she was beautiful. I don't. Didn't. Not before today. We say hi. Her eyes are lavender, and she always says she worries about me, and I think sometimes that she means it. After I go home and check to see if Deterk is around, she isn't, but there's a screen full of rose petals sprinkled over trampled plants with thorns. I don't know. Ask her. I show up at the hospital, and my key still works. This time, the arrow is orange, and it leads me to this desk where a chunky North African type hurries me off to a private waiting room with one chair and a sofa. About ten minutes later, this guy in blue scrubs comes in, doesn't look at me, but smiles so hard I worry about his mouth muscles as he hurries me through the labyrinth of corridors, through doors that swing ominously open into airlocks, sealed with the soft lavender glow of microbe-killing ultra-UV. He leaves me in a plastic walled cubicle, hands me the usual disposable hospital open back, and tells me to strip. A nurse shows up. A she this time. Who doesn't look at me either, but at least doesn't smile. She whacks my inner arm with a sprayjector and tells me it'll be just a little while. It's a heavy sedative. Our start to buckle about 30 seconds after she leaves. Then there's a gurney, kids in green who also don't look at me. And before they've pushed me five minutes, the ceiling tiles are swimming across my field of vision. I don't think I'm going to be there when they plug me into the anesthesia machine. I want to be there. I'm staring at white, and someone is moaning, and I can feel someone wiping my mouth with something rough and scratchy, and I can feel my drool, and I realize, sort of, that it's me moaning, only I can't access that me to stop it. I wake up slowly, clutching at this really cool dream of a big field with flowers in it, and I'm walking and just feeling good. It's a long dream. Too long, I think, blurrily. I was talking to Turk, but I can't remember what she was saying. She likes flowers. Time to go to work soon. Hope I'm not late. I try to scratch my nose, and my arm doesn't work. I wake up for real, adrenaline pumping through me because I can't move. All I can see is white light, and where the hell am I? And I hear hurrying footsteps. The white light is a ceiling, and I remember where I am. Hospital. Strapped down. Tubes. My face is bandaged. It's so damn familiar. The nurse or aide or whatever babbles at me, but I don't listen. Just wait. There's nothing to do but wait. I'm still sort of drifting in and out when the doc comes in, but it's pretty soon, and he says something sharp to the nurse at the door. Then he's leaning over me so I can see his face, and that hand grabs my guts again because he's smiling and his eyes are bright. It worked. You're coming along just fine. He steps aside as two nurses in green scrubs, masks, and gloves move in to bustle around, unplugging drip lines and catheter, doing this and that, the things they do. Finally, one reaches for my face, and I clench up, because I still remember the pain way back then when they changed the dressings, and none of the drugs really stopped it. But there's no pain. Not really. Just a little prickly discomfort. And they're not bandages on my face, but more like a gauze mask, the shape of a face. The air feels icy cold on my skin, and it's real tender. I think I can feel air molecules bumping against it. Can I see? The words come out a croak, and my throat is raw, so they must have had a tube down me. The doc hesitates. It's not finished, he says slowly. 
You have to understand, the process of growing many layers of tissue doesn't happen in a few hours. This is just a break to let the new cellular groan stabilize and give you some time to regain a bit of muscle tone before the final session. You have an epidermal layer, but it's temporary. We still have a ways to go. One of the nurses holds a straw to my lips. I suck automatically, and the taste of bottled apples on my tongue brings back all the memories of the first time, but it's sweet and soothes my raw throat. I want to see, I say when I've finished, and sit up. Well, try to. The room twirls around me and my stomach heaves. Next thing I know, hands are laying me back on the bed again, and I'm clammy and cold and shaking. Take it slow, the doctor says, frowning at the bank of monitors next to my bed. Nothing is beeping anyway. I learned a long time ago that's a good sign. You're going to have to get used to moving again. Don't forget, you've been out for ten days. Ten days? It was in that document I sent you. He raises an eyebrow at me, satisfied with whatever the monitors are telling him. The one you read and retina stamped? The first session is the longest. The second will finish up the regeneration, and then there will only be a few plastic modifications. I wonder what else I didn't read. No wonder the dream seemed to go on so long. I'm gathering the strength to ask again, but he sticks a hand mirror in front of my face. A cheap import thing with a plastic rim and handle, like you might see in any cheap dollar store in the neighborhood. I look. I know it's not done, but disappointment still stabs me in the gut. But I make myself look. It's a lot better. I've got ears now. Sort of. And a nose. My face looks like... Well, a face anyway. Not very pretty, but you won't scream and faint if I run into you in a dark alley. No hair anywhere, and the skin is real pink like I've got a sunburn or something. I let my breath out in a long sigh, trying to breathe all that disappointment out with it, because if he quit now, I'd still be a whole lot better off. I don't want him to quit. I want to give you a week to recover. Doc is looking at me thoughtfully. You should be able to be released by tomorrow morning. He hesitates, and he's frowning a little. Do you have somebody staying with you? Somebody who can look after you while you get your strength back? I shake my head, and I could swear that he relaxes a bit. Tell you what, he smiles. Why don't you be my guest? I've got plenty of room in my condo. That way I can keep a first-hand eye on my handiwork. And the building is secure, so we can keep the media from bothering you. I start to say no, and it's so automatic that it stops me, and I swallow it. Why am I so quick? I study him for a minute, but I can't put my finger on anything. He's no domino. I'm pretty sure of that. Maybe it's just that nobody does that. Just offers. No strings. He's waiting, and I can see that he's getting a little impatient, maybe offended because I didn't jump at his offer. What the hell? I'm sorry. I don't have to pretend to be confused, because I am. That's really... That's nice of you. I'm groping for the words I'm supposed to say. But, hey, I've never really been in this situation before. Thank you, I finally say feeling like a boob, but he smiles, his eyes happy. That's fine, then. You rest, and I'll come by to get you when I get ready to leave. I shouldn't be here too late. He looks at the nurse now, and I watch all the warmth vanish from his face. He gives her some instructions, and I guess I'm supposed to go walk around later, but not too much, and there's some med codes, too. He goes off, and she goes off, but comes back in a little bit to bring me a cup full of pills and a lunch tray with hospital blah on it. 
jello that looks like green plastic, some of that fake chicken soup, custard. It hasn't changed since I was here the first time, and that was 20 years ago, when I was four. The first taste of custard brings it all back, and I lay the spoon back on the tray and lean back, hoping that one of those pills is going to make me sleep without dreams. But it doesn't. So I pull the bedside screen over and get online, and as soon as I get there, I get a screen full of bright flowers, like someone dropped about six bunches from a downtown flower stall on the floor. Bright red script written in a pointed, slanty hand spells out the words, How you doing? Sweet so far? It's the Turk's online handwriting. I recognize it. Wonder if she's good enough that she's really been hacking my med records, or if she's just guessing. I trace the words, doing sweet, not done yet, on the screen. Watch the words take shape in black, shaky script. It's an effort to write that much, and I want to let my hand fall. But I make the effort and trace a few more letters. Doc invited me to stay with him. I said yes. And I'm not sure why I told her that. But all of a sudden it seems real important to know what she thinks about it. And it's pointless to stare at the screen, because she may not get back to me for days. But right away... A crimson line starts to curve to life on the screen. I wait expectantly, but there are no words, just a fiery question mark glowing among all the spilled flowers and scattered petals. I shrug, and I don't know why it bothers me, but I write, it's okay, on the screen, and then I really do have to lie flat for a minute or two. And when the ceiling stops moving, I look back at the screen, all the writing's gone. There are just the flowers scattered all over. I kind of feel comforted, and I'm not sure why. I guess because Deterk seems to be able to get in anywhere. So I guess sometimes I've sort of pretended that she's always there. Just checking in, you know? So I don't worry about it anymore. I'll see what happens when I go home with the doc. I can always catch a cab back to the walk-up if I have to. I pull down a new book, Some Guy Who Walked Across Canada, and it's okay. But the author's trying too hard, and the nurse is happy when I sit up, and even happier when I wobble down the hall and back without her nagging me too much. Hey, I know the drill. I spent a lot of time here. Learned that if you do what they ask and don't bug them, they're nice to you. And if you're a pain, they get even sooner or later. About the time they bring in another meal tray that's loaded with food that carries way too much baggage from the past, the doc shows up again. This time, he's not wearing the white doctor suit. Just a classic jacket and shirt, no tie, no virus mask. Every bit the duck, but smiling and relaxed, like we're old friends meeting for a golf game or something. And the nurse brings me a release to sign and a retina and a wheelchair because they never let you walk out of the building. Guess they're afraid you'll sue if you fall down and break a leg. It's not too bad walking to the car that the attendant brings up. A car. Well, I guess if you're a duck, you can afford the registration fees and... Maybe he has to hurry into the hospital for emergencies. I think it's the first time I've ridden in a car that wasn't a taxi since that day. It's still real bright out because it's summer, and the streets are full of after-work crowds out shopping and eating and making eyes, squatting with wireless access screens on the pedestals of statues, on curbs, leaning against storefronts. No reason to be inside except to sleep. We pass them and don't even look. The condo is in one of the new towers with a garage underneath, with a gate and a guard with hard eyes. It's fluorescent bright, and the elevator that whisks us upstairs is covered with really clean green carpet. Walls, floor, everything. No mirrors. I get a little dizzy from the rush, 
I'm still feeling pretty rocky. We get off into this little space that's supposed to look like a courtyard, I guess, with a brick path and gravel and a pool. And even the light feels like sunlight. As the elevator doors close, something plops into the pool. A frog? A real one? I want to look, but the doc has his hand on my elbow now, and he isn't going to let me stop. I can feel it. Uh Uh-oh. Domino after all? The door that the brick path leads to opens all by itself, and I see only one other door on the other side of the courtyard space. So this is a pretty fancy place. I'm real shaky now, and I don't much care if the doc is a domino or not. I just want to sit down somewhere before I pass out. Everything sort of has this too bright, too clear look, like you get just before the black closes in. The room inside is huge, so big that I can't really sort it out. It's all windows and light, and I can see blue sky, so we have to be way high, and green leaves and flowers and the sound of water. Doc is pushing me, and I sort of fall down into this chair. It takes a little bit for the room to come into focus again, and when it does, Doc is holding out a glass. He's looking a little worried, but not enough to scare me. I'm sorry. He pushes a glass a centimeter in my direction. Take a drink of water. And I do, and it helps. And I can look around. It's one big room with a marble-topped kitchen island at one end and a fireplace with fake logs at the other. Chairs and small sofas covered in leather-looking stuff grouped together, all tasteful soft browns and grays with a few real bright splashes of color. The glass is a greenhouse wall with plants and bright splashy flowers and a little waterfall and rocks. Looks like one of those upscale ads you get hit with online. You should get your strength back in a day or two. Duck bustles in the kitchen area. Juice? He asks. I've got just about anything you want. Thanks. Anything is fine. He brings me a tall glass, like the glass that he had water in. It's too heavy to be glass, cut into sharp geometric designs. Crystal? The juice is pink, and I don't recognize the flavor. Maybe something tropical. It helps. I didn't really eat the hospital stuff, and all of a sudden I'm hungry. Doc has shed his jacket and poured a glass of dark red wine. He's bustling around the kitchen, not chattering, which I like, but getting out pans and mushrooms and a thick slab of salmon, cooking quickly and efficiently enough that Antonio would only curl his lip and not really sneer. And in a pretty short time, he serves up salmon sautéed in olive oil with some tiny perfect vegetables and fresh pasta. We eat at the small wooden table at the edge of his kitchen space. There's a single flower in a vase on the table, and the food is good really good. I mean, as good as what Antonio feeds the family at the restaurant. And I'm starving. Doc pours me a glass of wine to go with the salmon, a lighter red than he was drinking before. And it's nice, light with a hint of fruit. A Merlot? Domino's been teaching me wine, saving the stuff that the customers don't finish, making me pay attention. He may be handsy, but he's an okay guy and he really knows his wine. I'll be gone early in the morning. Doc swirls his wine in his glass, his eyes on the darkening city beyond the glass. Make yourself at home here. Do you mind staying in the condo? He raises his eyebrows. I haven't reprogrammed my security, and once you go outside, you can't get back in. That's fine, I shrug. I don't really have any place to go. Then I frown at my own glass, the wine tugging at me. How come you picked me? I blurt the words out, and there's the twinge of fear like he might suddenly realize that he made a mistake. I mean, why me? He smiles at me then, just a little, folds his napkin up and lays it beside his plate. 
I was wondering how long it would take you to ask. He leans his elbows on the table. I looked at a lot of applicants. He's speaking slowly, thoughtfully. You weren't the only one with this kind of extensive damage. His lips tighten briefly. I'm not sure exactly what made me choose you in particular. Maybe because the cause was so trivial. Not war, not an act of terrorism. Just an accident. He's lying. I feel a small, thin sliver of ice in my gut. Oh, yeah, I can always tell. I don't know why. Maybe because I watch people a lot, and most of the time they try not to notice me, so they act like I'm not there. But I'm just about never wrong. And he's lying. Look, you really got rushed into this. He picks up his glass of wine. I don't know who leaked the project to the media, but they really went for the story. He makes a face. I wanted to get you safely into the hospital before someone interfered. Someone always has a reason. I'm not surprised that you feel a bit overwhelmed. I run a thumb over the grain of the table, remembering that old man again. How did you get my picture? My voice is a little shaky in spite of myself. I contacted Children's Services. He clears his throat. I assume they got permission to collect personal effects after your mother, after the accident. There was no other family. I'm letting you get too tired. Why don't you come sit? He nods towards the living room area. The city is lovely after dark. Or would you rather go straight to bed? I don't want to go to bed. If I don't sleep, I'm going to start thinking about this, and I don't want to think about this. So I get up and go over to one of the big leather chairs, and I don't wobble too much. The view from here is really is lovely. It's not quite full dark, but the sky is a deep royal blue, and the lights spangle the towers and streets with gold and green and red, and the new aerial trams slide like glowing beads across invisible wires. I've never been this high up in my life. Doc talks for a while, real easy, as if we've been friends for a long time. He tells me about medical school and wanting to do this 20 years ago, back when it was just an experimental concept and stem cell research was getting outlawed everywhere. It looked like this kind of thing, regrowing tissues, would never happen. And his eyes glow when he talks about it, and I think of the old guy with the gaunt face who preaches about his angry god down at the little square near my walk-up, and that's how his eyes shine. I finally start nodding off, and I lose track of what he's saying. So he shows me to bed, and it's a room about the size of my walk-up, with its own bathroom and a spa tub and a separate shower, and windows that look out at a bridge. And from this angle and height, I'm not even sure which bridge it is. There are two twin beds and a chest, and there's a robe and a new set of pajamas on one of the beds. You didn't bring a lot with you, Doc says with a smile. There are some clothes in the chest and basic stuff in the bathroom. Let me know if you need anything. I will, I say. And he says goodnight and closes the door. I sit on the edge of the bed, my feet bare, the carpet thick as a mattress under my bare feet. I'm kind of dizzy from the wine in the day, and probably all the time I was out while my face was growing back. I finally get up and I go to the bathroom, and I make myself look in the mirror. Yeah, better. Closer to human. Not there yet, but closer. There's toothpaste and that kind of stuff, but I just go straight to bed. And it's weird. As I pull the cover up over me, already half asleep, it comes to me that this is somebody's room. Not a guest room. Somebody sleeps here. And I'm not sure why I think that, because there's no other clothes or stuff lying around. But I'm sure of it.
I wake up late, and for a minute I can't remember where I am. Then it all comes back to me, and I can't help it. I go into the bathroom, first thing, and I look at my face. The dock is gone, and I prowl around. I don't know why I thought this was somebody's room. There's nothing to show. Clothes in the drawers are all new, all my size. Expensive stuff, like I was a dock, too. It kind of creeps me out that they're there, but I put them on because my crummy pants seem wrong in this fancy place. Like they might rub off somehow, stain the furniture. And I really feel different now. Like I'm changing, and not just my face. I jumped off that cliff, that's for sure. There's a screen in the bedroom, and I try it. But a polite woman's voice tells me that I don't have the password to get online. But there's a separate library link, and I can download books without a password. I want to talk to Turk, but I settle for that book I started in the hospital. By the time the doc arrives, I finished it. The evening is strange, nice, and somehow creepy at the same time. Doc fixes another really fine dinner, and there's wine, and he asks me about what I've read, and we talk. And you know, I've never talked about what I read to anybody but Turk. He's smart. Well, I guess you gotta be, to be a doc, huh? And he asks me about school, and gets all thoughtful when I tell him about doing all the online courses I could get from the state. Then he starts talking about the benefit of in-the-flesh classes, and how maybe I want to do that when I'm done with the medical stuff, and that would be fine. But he forgets how I live. That takes real money. And when I ask him about online, he sort of waves the question away, saying something about security and changing it as a pain. And just as I'm getting ready to go to bed, I remember, and I ask him who used to sleep in the bedroom. He gets quiet, and I know right then I said the wrong thing. Then he says nobody. He's lying again. It goes on like this, and it's nice. Like the support group, only he really talks. Most of them don't, except for Kitten. I go back to the hospital, and this time the session is short, and I'm not so whacked when I wake up. I come back to the condo after the second treatment. Doc doesn't even ask me. He just shows up, and I'm not so shaky this time. I guess this session didn't take as long. I didn't dream as much, but I saw the old man again, and this time he held my hand around the blade of his knife... And I felt such pride as the first pale sliver of wood curled back over my knuckles. There are no scars on those hands. They're all smooth. So it's from before, but I knew that. I wonder who the old guy is. My grandfather? I stretch for some kind of memory, but all I get is a picture of those small, smooth hands in that pride in the curl of blonde wood. I brought this home. Doc pulls a mini-CD out of his pocket after dinner one night. I thought you might want to see what I'm doing. It's creepy watching it. I sit in one of those chairs with my knees up under my chin and watch the cold arc of the machine crawl back and forth across my face. That's all you can see, my face. The rest is all green sheets and hot light. Tubes and wires connect the silver arch of the machine to something I can't see, and it runs on a kind of track, like a train, you know? And I guess he edited it some, because this is days and days, right? Weeks. But the machine zips back and forth, and it maybe takes half an hour to watch my face grow. On one pass, the machine squirts out this pale stuff. The scaffold, Doc calls it. Then it goes back again and sprays pinker stuff over it. The cells. And they grow, and then the machine sprays on more scaffold. It keeps crawling back and forth, and my face grows. There's a little hump where most people have a nose. And then it's more of a hump, and it gets bigger, and arches, and I've got cheeks, and lips, and... 
After you were anesthetized this time, we used an enzyme to dissolve the temporary dermal layer that was in place. Doc is leaning forward, staring at the screen, so that the new layers of tissue could bond seamlessly. I think about lying there on that table, unconscious, and my skin melting away. I've never dreamed about the fire, but now I shiver, and for a moment I think I'm going to be sick. On the screen, the silver tube-trailing machine crawls back and forth, and my nose looks like a nose. I touch it. It juts out of my face. I can't quite get my mind around that feeling. On the screen, the silvery arch slides back and forth and back again, growing my face one layer of cells at a time. Living with the dock is kind of strange. It's like a dream that I can't quite wake up from. I think I've figured out what this is all about by now. It's started to feel okay to be there in that room that was somebody's. It's kind of like jail, too, I guess, because I still can't get online, and I can't leave. I can, but we both know that if I do, it wrecks something. And I feel like a part of me I can't really get inside is having a conversation with Doc, and I'm not part of it. And this sounds really nuts, I know, but it's okay. I want to talk to Turk about it. One night, I dream that my face is talking to me, and it scares the crap out of me because if my face is out there talking to me, what is on the front of my skull? And I wake up yelling, and the doc is there, putting his arms around me, holding me, just sitting there until I fall asleep again. This time I dream about this woman, and she's looking down at me and crying. She had red hair, and I wake up knowing that this is my mother. I've never dreamed about her before, not once. Why is she crying? I try to remember, and I can't. My face is wrong. I don't know how I know, but I do. When I tell Doc, he tells me it's normal. The feeling will go away after a while. He's not lying this time. Two more sessions to go. I look like a painting that's not quite finished yet. And when I look in the mirror, this stranger looks back at me. I don't think he likes me. I dream about the old man a lot. I'm pretty sure he's my grandfather. He lets me carve a piece of wood, holding my hands in his... And mine are very small. I dream about my mother, too, and I dream about her crying again. And sometimes there's this all-white light and stuff that means hospital. How could she be in the hospital? She died in the car before I went there. Didn't she? Didn't she? The doc talks about my staying here with him after, about going to college. He talks about having no kids and money, and why have it if you don't use it? There's a story about a man who carved this statue, and then it came to life, and was his perfect lover. I guess that's what Doc's doing, with all his talk about college and my staying with him. Like Domino, after all. But, you know, it's an okay trade. Really. It is. But I still feel like I'm living in a dream, and my face still looks at me like I'm a stranger. And there's no reason to say no, so I don't know why I don't say yes right then, but I can't. Not out loud. Doc thinks that means yes, I guess. I don't know. I ask him if my mother might still be alive, and he looks at me real strange. No, he says, and he's not lying. Then Turk finds me. I'm downloading a book, and the screen lights up with a storm of wind and yellow leaves swirling around in what looks like a miniature tornado. Good security, but not good enough. Green words swirl with the wind, and then the screen is full of fireworks. Turk laughing. You okay? Yeah. 
I can say the words out loud because this is a sweet system and does voice. I wonder what the wind and leaves mean. I couldn't get out. Doc's paranoid about security. The gray clouds in Mirror Lake appear. She's being thoughtful. You gonna be pretty? She finally asks. Yeah. But I don't think he's got the face right. The words just blurt out. I haven't even said them in my head. Not really. It doesn't look right. And he says that's normal. Even the plastic patients feel that way. But I don't know. It's like I'm looking at someone else. Maybe he got the wrong picture. But the kid I saw, that smiling one, I remember how it twisted my insides. Nah, he didn't get the wrong picture. On the screen, clouds and lake. No words. Something doesn't feel right. And when I say that, it really smacks me. Because it doesn't. And I've been telling myself that it's just me and everything is really alright. Because it is. And I don't want to talk anymore, but I missed a Turk a lot, and I don't want to lose her either. Can you get in again? I say, and I get a handful of sunflowers tumbling across the screen. That's a yes. Then she's gone. She's always really good at reading me. I don't know how you do that in digital, but she does. And I feel better, and realize all of a sudden that I've been feeling bad. Doc is gone, and I'm supposed to go in tomorrow for the final session. And when it's all over... It's a long one again, I guess. I'll be done. I'll walk through the condo, out to the little jungle that grows under the glass wall, kind of framing the city. It looks so beautiful up here. You can't see the ugly stuff down there. I wonder what it's like to live for years and years up above all the people who wash the dishes and panhandle and rob. I mean, I've been up here for a couple of weeks now, but it's not like I live here. It's more like I'm walking around in a dream, and any day I'm going to wake up and it'll be time to go eat the spicy curries that Antonio feeds us and wash the paella pans and taste wine with Domino. I hold my hands out and look at them. Doc says he'll fix them, too, but they work, and I don't know. I think I don't want him to. I run my thumb over some of the shiny white skin, and it feels hard like plastic. I don't want to be perfect. I think about the old man again, in the little boy hands, and that pride, twenty years ago. No family, Doc said, so I guess he's dead. Like my mother? I turn my back on the city. I don't know it from up here. And I go down the short, wide hall, and I go into Doc's room. I haven't been in here before, just looked in. It's dim, because silk drapes that match the silk quilt on the big bed kind of shut out the light. The quiet furniture makes me think of my grandfather stroking that satiny wood and showing me how to hold a knife. I can smell Doc, a rich musky odor of flesh and some kind of scent, like he's really here, maybe hiding in the closet in the back of my neck prickles. I've never snooped in here. Honest, I could have looked to see what he hides in a sock drawer, but I haven't. I'm not sure why I'm doing it now. I should just turn off the brain and go download a book wait for the final session, I guess. But I'm walking over to the dresser, and I don't think I could stop myself. It's like I'm two people, and right now the other one is running the muscles. I don't find anything in the drawers, or the drawers of the nightstand. There's a rope for the wall vid and music system. Clothes, some pills with no labels, tissue, that kind of thing. It's in the closet, flat against the wall, up on a shelf, stuffed behind a stack of silky folded sheets or blankets or something. A picture. 
It's not a hollow base, but a flat frame with a digital photo printed out on real old-fashioned glossy paper, as if it came from an antique camera. But maybe it really did. The doc is 50 at least, probably more, if his plastic buddies have worked on him. My hand is shaking, as if the part of me pulling the muscle strings has already figured it out. But I guess I haven't, because when I take the picture over to the window and pull aside the drapes, my mind is empty. I just stand there, staring at the face in the picture, not thinking anything. Just staring. Years ago, in another life, I sat in a chair and watched that laughing kid face that stabbed me in the gut lengthen and firm up and grow older. He stares up at me right now, from the slick surface of the picture, his hair in a military buzz with a diamond stud in one earlobe, and his eyes are a blue that's almost gray. He seems sad. It's some kind of formal thing, like graduation, but not military because there's no uniform. Just a blue shirt with a collar. There's another picture under this one. I can just see the edge, and I kind of pry the frame apart and slide it out. It's the same kid. Younger, or maybe just grubbier. He's in a canoe that looks like it's made from real wood. It's floating on this gorgeous lake, kind of like the Turk's thoughtful lake. Doc's in the canoe with him. The kid's smiling for the camera, and Doc's smiling at the kid. I was wrong about what Doc is doing. It's his son. You can see it in his face. I wonder what happened. I slide the picture back where I found it, and I feel slimy. Like I've been hiding, watching him have sex. I feel... I'm not sure how I feel, but now I know. I go into the bathroom in the room I've been sleeping in. His room. That's who I've been feeling. I stand in the mirror. I haven't looked at my face yet. Oh, I've looked. I watched the vids with Doc. I saw it happen. But I've just sort of inventoried it before this. I kind of skid away. It's like my face in the mirror is ice, and I can't get my footing. But now I look. I stand in front of the mirror, and I don't let my shoulders turn. My face duck. My eyes slide. Nah, I look. Like I'm meeting me on the street, on the way to Antonio's to scrub the paella pans. Interesting guy. What do you think of him? What's his past? I want to shake, and I kind of slap myself inside my head, you know? Hey, look at him. He's walking down the street, so look at him. And I do. He's ugly. That's all. Just ugly. I mean, his face is kind of too bold, too bald. Not really formed quite right, you know? It should be, dunno, more defined. Maybe his mom ate something wrong or drank the wrong water when she was pregnant or something. And I remember one year way back when I was in this kind of homey place for kids, like a real house. It wasn't just us burn kids, it was some others too. And their faces weren't damaged. They just weren't quite faces yet. And they had other problems, too. But that's what I see. I'm not normal. But, you know, I'm just some guy that doesn't look normal. Not a monster. Not somebody where all you can think is, Oh my God, what happened to him? I end up on my knees on the floor, and I'm goddamn crying. My tears are leaking all over my jeans, and it's nuts. I've never cried. Well, in the hospital, yeah, when it hurt, but not after. What was the point? I'm crying now. Doc is going to be home pretty soon. My knees hurt when I get up off the floor. I kind of focus on the pain as I stumble into the bedroom. He's going to be home, and I don't know how to get hold of Deturk. 
but she's waiting for me. When I touch up the online, the screen is full of shriveled leaves, but they vanish as soon as I touch the screen. All of a sudden, it's a snow of white petals against black. I guess she's there. I gotta go. I type the words in slowly because I don't think I can say them out loud. I can't finish this. That same crimson question mark I saw the first day in the hospital curves into the screen, burning into me. I'm just finished, I type. I just need to get away from here. Nothing twisted. Not really. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe love is always twisted. Nobody serious is going to come looking for me, I tell her. The screen is frozen. Question mark. White petals. I'm here all by myself. I just need to go. I type the words in, but she's gone. Elsewhere. I should just get up. Go back to the walk-up. Because I haven't broken any law, and the worst that can happen is that the media follows me and makes a fuss, and I have to stay away from the news streams for a while. But I just sit there, frozen as a screen. And then all of a sudden it goes blank and blue. Scary. White letters and numbers suddenly blink into life. No flowers, no visuals at all. Just an address. Some street address in Baltimore, of all places. Thanks, I type. The screen goes blank. She really is gone this time. I go find paper and pen in Doc's bedroom, figuring he probably has some for fancy notes to friends or something. This isn't something to type online in email or print. I write the address down from memory, just in case I forget. Then... I lay a clean sheet on the desk beside the keyboard. I wonder what kind of wood the desk is made of. If the old man would know. Probably. The pen feels weird and clumsy in my fingers. I'll take money from my account in cash. Pay the surcharge for using it to buy a ticket. That should throw the media off. And Doc. Antonio isn't going to care that I'm gone. And I wonder what I'm going to find at that address. De Turk? Maybe. It occurs to me that I don't really know that she's a she. I've just sort of guessed. It doesn't really matter. Maybe, just maybe, my mother is alive and my memories are right, and not the state database. I mean, it had to cost a million bucks to fix me. And if she walked away, well, National Health did it. Maybe that was the reason? You can find out anything if you're willing to pay. Antonio doesn't pay much, but what did I have to spend my money on before? I think maybe, if she's really alive, all I want to do is go look at her. Just once, you know? Nah, I don't know. I touch the pen to the paper, make a tiny blue dot, perfectly round in the color of the sky the first night here, when I watch the city lights all come on. Doc, I write. The words form slowly, letters looping out across the sand-colored paper. I found the picture of your son, I haven't snooped before, I'm sorry, and I don't know what happened to him, or to you both. I just don't know, and I want you to know that you did such a great job, and I really mean it. And I'm sorry I'm not staying, but I just can't. I don't know really why, maybe just because I've never been me, you know? I mean, I guess I was a long time ago, but after the crash, I was the kid in bed four, and then I was the burn kid. And then the monster, who made people look away, and the paella pan washer, and now I don't know. I guess I just want to try being me. I don't know if I can even do that. Isn't that a joke? But I need to try. 
And there's this girl, and she'd be a whole lot easier than me to do. And she's blonde, and you can see she was real pretty, and the media would love her. And it would be like Cinderella or something. Her name is Kitten, and you can find her at the support group I used to belong to, the Tuesday one. And it's got to be in my file. And I need to say more to him, but the words won't come. I think maybe I don't know yet what it is that I need to say. It might take a while to know, and maybe then I can come back and say it. I don't know. But it's a possibility, and I'm not sure I've had possibilities before. Just stuff that happened to me. So I just write, Thanks, Doc. And I leave the note on the table, and I go out to the door. First time I've done it by myself, but no alarms go off. The frog plops into the little pool in the pretty courtyard, and I take the elevator down to the lobby, and I've never been through there. And this woman is coming in, all dressed in this nice business suit and boots, and I can see her eyes coming up to my face, and I'm going to do the thing I do on the street, look past her, not see. Only I make myself not do that. And she looks, and I'm ugly. You can see that in her eyes. But she looks. And then she goes past me and gets in the elevator. That's it. Thanks, Doc. And I'm sorry. I wish I could have been what you needed. I'm scared. I go out the door, onto the street, and I head for Baltimore. As ever, copyright is our Mary's. Don't you know? There you go. Next up is the fantastic movie soundtracks with David. David Raglan, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raikland. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This time we're going to take a look and listen at a show that's been requested by people from all over the world. You've got to be impressed with the fan base of Cowboy Bebop. Today, we're going to look at this amazingly musical and innovative anime show that was conceived with a high degree of musical content. You can tell just from the title, Cowboy Bebop. Yep, it's a space western set to jazz music. That's how it was conceived by the writer, Kaiko Nobumoto, and the director, Shinichiro Watanabe, made extensive use of music. In fact, they... uh, actually called each of the episodes a session, like a recording session, and titled the episodes as if they were either pieces of music or uh, musical genres. Uh, For instance, uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Bohemian Rhapsody, My Funny Valentine, even heavy metal. But again, the genre that's most frequently uh, represented is what I'm going to call Japanese jazz. It's an international language And jazz is played all over the world, but there are differences stylistically between European jazz and American jazz or South American jazz and, yes, Japanese jazz, especially as it's applied to soundtracks. Our composer this time is the remarkably versatile Yoko Kano and her band The Seatbelts. This is actually a group of studio musicians from three different countries um, based in Tokyo, New York, and Paris. The soundtrack really has a a wide spectrum of music to cover all kinds of emotion, and it was actually, for the most part, composed in advance of the completion of the animation. This is pretty common in animation and in 
other kinds of uh, programs where they're going to make a lot of episodes and there may not be time to, to custom score each of them. For example, uh, soap operas. Now, uh, Cowboy Bebop has a lot of action. It's about a uh, group of futuristic mercenaries who uh, are basically bounty hunters throughout the, uh, the solar system. It's interesting how the music grounds the action and makes it seem more uh, realistic and plausible. Uh, at the same time, it also gives a great sense of, of fun and uh, uh, creativity. Majority of the, the score is uh, done with uh, a big band, sometimes with uh, vocalists. And the style of jazz definitely has the orchestration, you know, the big band, or the uh, the harmony, the special chords, the are characteristic of jazz. What makes it a uh, unique animation accent for their universe is the rhythm tends to be Japanese. And there are times where the rhythm section is actually playing almost uh, traditional Japanese rhythms while the jazz pianist is playing a melody on top. Very creative and unique, and yet it seems to fit perfectly with this universe. Well, enough talk. Let's go to some music. We're going to take a listen to uh, perhaps the most famous cut from the soundtrack, Tank, the main title. The theme song is a showcase for the amazing Japanese jazz session musicians. They nail the high-speed rhythm section, the screaming trumpet line, the virtuoso solos. Everybody is playing at a really high energy level. Here it is, Tank. song from Cowboy Bebop, performed by Yoko Kano and the Seatbelts. Some wonderful jazz performances there, very idiomatic, and yet multinational uh, polyglot kind of music. For instance, if you listen to this percussion section, you'd hear bongos and congas, Latin. So this is Afro, Latin, Asian, American, international style music, a, a new kind of music for a new kind of futuristic, edgy anime. Now let's turn to yet another style, spy guitar with jazz band. The cue is called spy, and it's for espionage and intrigue moments. The sound, the style is very much like, uh, say, Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn. Yet there's something about it, not just the recording technology, which is, of course, uh, very modern and crisp, but also just their approach to jazz. It's um, a little bit more formal and uh, a little bit more precise. Uh, for instance, jazz flutes here, a whole uh, section of them are playing together with a, a great sense of style and verve, 
but it's a section of them playing with discipline. That's something that would be more of a, of a Japanese approach to making the, the spontaneous discipline. Spy from Cowboy Bebop. soundtrack to Cowboy Bebop and featuring Spy Guitar. I also love that percolating rhythm section there, especially towards the end. Now let's take even more far out journey with our hybrid rhythm section. Here we're going to have traditional Japanese percussion with a jazz drummer playing a traditional Japanese rhythm along with a jazz piano melody. This is a really unique hybrid. I don't think I've ever heard it before and it's fun to listen to. It's also uh, got an almost ritualistic quality that makes the animation action seem uh, a touch more serious as well as high energy. The piano player here is Yoko Kano, and it's called Piano Black. Black, featuring Yoko Kano Piano, music from Cowboy Bebop. One of the great traditions of jazz is improvisation based on a theme, taking some famous song or other famous melody and improvising, elaborating, adding flourishes, changing it, maybe transforming it into a completely new kind of sound. This could be done by a series of individual improvisations or through the skill of an arranger, a kind of group improvisation where everybody commits to taking the melody in a whole new direction. Yoko Kano does a fantastic job of turning this famous classical melody into a toe-tapping, up-tempo, happy jazz number. Music for the lighthearted, cheerful sections. I have an idea. Let's play a little game here. I'm going to let you guess the name of this famous classical melody that she's based Car 24 on. It has a festive holiday sound to it, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it even if you're not sure what the tune it's based on is. And if you do, you will get a big grin when you realize what she's done in transforming it into Car 24.
424 from the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack. It's a jazz arrangement of a famous classical tune. Which one? The Nutcracker Suite. It's the main theme. If you want to go back and take a listen, you'll see it'll click into place and you'll get a big smile from all the clever updating that she's done to turn it into a pop tune. And speaking of pop tunes, there's uh, a lot of original songs written for Cowboy Bebop, and we're going to listen to one called Rain. There's actually multiple versions, and I'm going to play the version that was uh, sung by a a wonderful Japanese pop vocalist who has a clear, accurate soprano, really exceptional. I think it's Mei Yamani. There's a male vocal version, too, that actually may have been used more, but I remember this was used in an epic battle set in a cathedral. The song begins with an organ, so the music not only is uh, a cool rock-pop organ, but it also helps set the location of the action. And there's electric guitar in it, and it really plays like uh, a rock ballad. Rain. Days are just like moments turned to hours. Mother used to say, If you want, you'll find a way. But mother never danced through fire showers. Rain, a dramatic pop song written for Cowboy Bebop, and it featured Mayamani vocals and the arrangement, of course, is by Yoko Kano, lyrics by Tim Jensen. Let's take a listen to one of those cues we talked about at the top of the show that was recorded in New York, and not just any place, it's at the Rudy Van Gelder Studios. This guy is the greatest engineer in the history of jazz. He basically invented the style of bebop jazz recording, and also uh, many later experimental and mainstream sounds. He worked with uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Quincy Jones, and of course Cowboy Bebop needed to record with him since the show is so much based on pop music from the 1950s and 60s. Here we have a jazz combo of New York session players who are all amazing playing on Gateway. There's a lot of short solos after a main theme. Works really well in fast-paced fast-cutting action sequences. Gateway.
Gateway for Jazz Combo from Cowboy Bebop, music of Yoko Kano. I've searched for interviews, and all of her videotaped interviews are in Japanese. So I'm going to translate her thoughts on how Cowboy Bebop came about and her approach to composing. She said that the most relaxed and easygoing group of animators she ever worked with were those on Cowboy Bebop. She describes them as almost being like 50s jazz hipsters themselves. She felt little pressure to do the music any particular way, and she got to be very creative and do all different kinds of styles. What did surprise her was the places that they chose to use some of her cues. Different situations, actions, emotions than she thought was there. They were all appropriate and they worked, and she said it was fine with her. She's self-taught and doesn't like one particular style more than another. She enjoys doing all different kinds of music. Let's take a listen to The Real Folk Blues, the end titles for the series, and one of the few songs that's sung in Japanese. Our vocalist is Mai Yamani, and it's really kind of another pop ballad, but it has a great improvising section there towards the, the end, and we'll hear a little bit of that to finish our show on Cowboy Bebop. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. You can help spread the word. Contact me, David Raikland, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraikland.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. And there you go. David, thank you so much. That is 225. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do think about coming back next week and listen to 226. And do drop a book. Drop a book out. <laughs> Just shoot one. <laughs> do consider, you know, helping Starships over out. That would be fantastic. Pop over the site. There's a number of options to choose from for monthly donations or a one-off. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A battery ration procedure initiated.
set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.